You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. of the core curriculum uh this series we are working through homer's odyssey the uh uh the terminator 2 of ancient greek literature um (laughs) (laughs) although whether you know the the debate continues to rage about which is which is superior uh this is jordan poss speaking i'm an instructor of history at piedmont technical college in greenwood south carolina uh the host today had originally been going to be uh the beloved inimitable Nathan Gilmore, but he had to bow out at the last moment. So please uh, bear with us in our infirmities. Uh, joining <laughs> me, t- joining me today is uh, David Grubbs. Uh, and let me make sure that I've got this right. I've closed that window. Assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Uh, not yet a prof- Yeah, I'm not yet professing, but I will assist others in professing. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, doesn't Thomas Aquinas have something about how, uh, just assisting people in finding the truth is a noble pursuit too. Yeah, yeah. I should I should look that quote up and hang it above my door. Yeah, I, I, it's it's something about reflecting light. I can't remember the exact words, but we're cool. not here to talk about Saint Thomas, and uh, unfortunately, although Homer is great <laughs> in my book. Uh, well, today we're covering books eight and nine of the Odyssey. We're picking up the story with uh, Odysseus uh, having been taken in, right, being shown good hospitality by the i say the phiokians uh how are you how do you say this uh david i say i say phatians but i think that's that's something more like the received british like the, school pronunciation yeah, that, like the, that the english tra- the english pronunciation of the latin version of the greek word or something yeah something like that yeah i'm i i un, unlike um Unlike Nathan, I don't actually have the chops to be able to kind of <laughs> dial my pronunciations back to <laughs> Attic. <laughs> well, I, I first read uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey in Richmond Lattimore's translation. Mm, uh, and he okay. transliterates everything very literally, right? Yeah. So it is, you know, the C there is spelled with a K in Lattimore. So I, I learned right. it Phiokians and, and can't really unlearn it uh what translation are you using today i am using the robert fagels but the one in my heart is the venerable samuel butler oh gotcha Um, (laughs) though though the uh the edition that i grew up reading of samuel butler's translation had actually gone back and uh altered it somewhat um samuel butler's original translation includes uh the latin names of as many characters as he could because for some for some reason he thought that his audience would recognize the latin names oh so readily instead of odysseus yes he calls them ulysses and you know up in olympus there you know here's jove and minerva talking gotcha um but the what i what i uh the the edition that i grew up with had switched it back but still, it was uh, like Circe spelled with C's, Alcinous mm. spelled with a C, Phasian spelled to, with like, a C. Kirke and that, yeah. 
Gotcha. Right, right. Um, uh, well, I'm. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I, I never, uh, uh, I never internalized that the the cuss sounds that would be there in the original Greek. Gotcha. Um, so you know, apologies, listeners. Yeah. Everything dear I listeners, say. <laughs> dear listeners, we are trying. Uh, well, I'm <laughs> reading from Fagels too, and it looks like on video I have ex- the exact mm-hmm. uh, same edition. I've actually got two editions of this that I jump back and forth between, but same mm-hmm. poem, uh, same translator. So uh, let's get going again, uh, picking up the story with the Phaeacians and Odysseus being hosted by them. Uh, so, uh, David, when we start, you know, where where in the story of Odysseus being taken in by these people do we begin in book eight? So in the previous day, he had um, stealthed his way into the city into the palace and right up to the very throne of uh, Alcinous and Ariti, his queen. Um, and uh, I don't know that he knows that he's in stealth mode back in book seven, um, but it says that Athena had cast a mist around him so that he's not perceived by others. A li- he talks to a little girl who talks to him, but that's actually Athena. so i it's like he's invisible but he doesn't know he's invisible it seems um but when he pops up in front of uh alcinus like they have this they have this impression this guy's got he's got powers um so the like from the very beginning their hospitality towards him is tinged by this uh impression of him as beyond the normal Mm-hmm. And so um, just to enhance that, the king, the queen, they've already they've already experienced him, you know, kind of ninjaing up to them, you know, appearing in a puff of smoke. Um, and then at the beginning of book eight, uh, Alcinous wakes up, Odysseus wakes up, they're sitting down, but Athena is roaming up and down the town in build and voice the wise Alcinous's herald. So so here's Athena pulling a, you know, a body double again, uh, stopping each citizen, urging them all, come this way, lords and captains of Phaeacia, come to the meeting grounds and learn about the stranger, a new arrival. He's uh, here at our king's wise king's palace now. He's here from roving the ocean, driven far off course. He looks like a deathless god. <laughs> and so uh, I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to leave that out because by the time we get to the end of book eight, there is a crowd of people feasting, all gathered together to hear Odysseus tell his story. But it is Athena who arranges for them to be there. Warning <laughs> <laughs> uh, interference for Odysseus as always. Oh yeah, she's the puppet master. Oh yeah. So this uh, chapter eight has... Um, several different uh, accounts of entertainments that Alcinus gives to him, um, feasting story time, then some sports, and some more feasting story time. Um, so what, what, what do we, what do, what do we think is, is remarkable? Um, one thing that I'd like to just kind of following up on the, on the thread that you started, uh, Jordan, is the, uh, the lavish hospitality that is announced from the very beginning. 
Um, it's not as if Odysseus has had to earn a welcome or persuade them to be generous to him. Um, at the very beginning of the chapter, you see uh, Alcinous promising to give them an escort. And uh, while the ship is being prepared, the nobility are, you know, sort of partaking in these pastimes just to, you know, kill time till it's done. Yeah, the hospitality thing, I, I'm, you know, dear listener, please, again, <laughs> bear with us. I know this is something that I keep bringing up in the episodes that I've appeared in, and, and you will hear more of it as we go forward. But it's, it is such a prominent, salient theme throughout and and one reason i keep bringing it up is because it struck me so so um i'm trying to avoid the word obvious it just struck me so uh starkly uh this read through just just the uh again who who is giving hospitality who is good at it who is abiding by the rules who is not uh and the people who extend an open hand to guests regardless of knowing who they are is again really jumps out and it also you know casts into really bad relief the actions of the suitors back in Ithaca and I, I think we'll come back to talk more about that situation later when we talk about some of the songs that the bard sings uh but the suitors know precisely who who it is that they're crossing <laughs> and yet they're violating hospitality anyway what stands out about to me anyway about Alcanus's people is that they are offering just immense comfort and hospitality to a man that sure seems to have uh something uncanny about him seems to have something uh striking and and even to the point that they notice how physically fit he is when they they play sports like look at his thighs Uh, (laughs) one of the greatest lines in the odyssey um but again they they still have no idea who he is and and yet they're all turning out for him they're all making sure that he is Mm -hmm. that this this you know man who's essentially a piece of flotsam has uh is is cared for and um not just cared for but actually seen on his way um i don't don't know what what uh david what might you add to that because i I know we've been on a couple of episodes together and hospitality is a thing i i keep coming back to but um um i don't know do we want to talk about some of the specific instances of hospitality in here I've, i've got something in mind there's uh, the the feast the feasting itself. All right, it's it's not just that the guest has come to his house. It's that literally everyone in the community is coming together to yeah. feast with the guest. Uh, that that's 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 a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the attention that Alcinous has to the emotional state of Odysseus, so yeah. that um, e- each time there's a shift in activities. It's because Alcinous is, is perceives himself as diffusing um, a, a, an emotionally tense situation um, with Odysseus, whether involving sadness or anger. Yeah, and so that that attentiveness not only to the physical needs of his guests, but also the the I guess the the psychological well being, the mood of his guest. Uh, really bespeaks a uh you know the, the the degree to which this hospitality ethos is is kind of a it's a whole human ethos yeah. 
Um, it's not just that he's like, I gave you food and clothes. What are you complaining <laughs> about? You know, um, here's your grilled cheese. Uh, you know, and we're like, oh, I don't want to watch football. Well, we're watching football. It's my TV. Right? Like, <laughs> like it's, it's not that. Um, Alcinus is incredibly attentive um, to his mysterious godlike guest. Um, and this is something that, that comes up periodically and will come up at the end of uh, the very end of the Odyssey too, which is the real possibility. I mean, the gods wander around impersonating people <laughs> <laughs> like you could find yourself hosting one. So, you know, roll yeah. out the red carpet. Cause you don't know whose feet are walking on it. Yeah. It, what jumps to mind centuries later, right. Is the, you know, which, which uh, is it one of Paul's epistles talking about enter- entertaining angels unawares. Is it, um, is it uh, he- is it Hebrews? Yeah, I think that might be right. I'm 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 blanking on exactly where in yeah. the New Testament that is, but that is not a yeah. That's that's in a Christian context, mm-hmm. but it is not something that would be even unheard of among Greeks, which right? Is, which is interesting. And Athena herself plays. She she's like one of those people in a college production of a play who has to keep changing <laughs> costumes backstage and just keeps appearing. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> just in these books, she plays mm-hmm. at, at least – I remember two people she just kind of appears as. She's the person who marks Odysseus's throw in the discus tournament as well, just kind of pops up there yeah. to point out, hey, he threw it farther than y'all. He threw uh, it really far. Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever thrown it this far. He's amazing. <laughs> what an arm. Uh, <laughs> but I think she might even pop up somewhere else as well, and so uh, – yeah, this is a this is a real thing that these people have to be on the lookout for. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking speaking of that though, but again, the, the unstinting hospitality and and this sort of whole human vision, which I think is a really good point and a good way to put that. Uh, they're not just that. Alchemist doesn't doesn't just have a guest room, you know, because I, mm-hmm. I think we have probably all stayed over at people's houses where they've. <laughs> you know, kind of, yeah. kind of taken a garage or what used to be the laundry room and kind of finished it and stuck a bed in there. And it's, you know, it's, it's, they've done their best. It's comfortable, but you know, the, in this world, Alcanus is making sure that Odysseus has the best of everything mm-hmm. and going out of his way to make sure that he's providing not just, you know, Oh, we've got a little bit of extra space or we could pull out the couch. Uh, mm-hmm. But I mean, giving him you know, lavishing attention upon him and the, the attention to his psychological needs. The term that comes to mind, and I, I only say this half in jest, is he's trying not to trigger Odysseus, mm-hmm. right? He's because something about some of these entertainments is bothering his guest, uh, yes. and a good host is going to look out for that, right? He's, he's going to you know make sure that part part of the comfort <laughs> that he's offering is uh, not hearing songs that make you cry. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I I've never shown Schindler's List to anybody staying at my house, so uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm like I said, I'm being a little silly about it, but that's that's some a, a real concern. And Alchemist is mm-hmm. being a very very good host. Uh, do we want to talk about the games? Because I, I feel like these things are linked really closely. So yeah, I I I want to I really want to talk about Odysseus crying because he just yeah. cries a lot. Uh, in this chapter um but yeah maybe 
well, yeah, let, let's, let's, there, there's a, there's a song and a crying and then there's some games and then there's some more songs. Then he takes a bath. Then there's more songs and more crying. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's talk about the games and the bath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then talk about the songs. Yeah. Well, be- before we go there, I just remembered. Um, now, maybe you can tell me more about this, but I have mm-hmm. heard lots of speculation that uh, in this book, um, Alcanus's bard, Demodocus, is introduced. Uh, and he is described as yeah. blind, yes, but having a kind of second sight. Uh, is this what TV tropes calls a self insert on the part of Homer, or do you do you think those traits of a blind singer were sort of retconned back onto whoever wrote this or composed this? I should say. Is is, um, is there anything to this, or is it just some a kind of an interesting coincidence? People have noticed that Homer is traditionally described this way. Yeah, my understanding is that his is that historically Demodocus has been seen as a kind of self-insert for Homer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that blindness, uh, that physical blindness is accompanied by uh, enhanced inner sight, um, insight, right? right. Uh, is, I mean, it, it's, it's a trope in many cultures, but, but you also see it in, uh, Quite a bit in in Greek culture, um, so uh, it's not just Demodocus, the blind bard in the Odyssey. Um, it's also Tiresias, mm-hmm. the blind prophet in the underworld, um, who also shows up as a blind prophet in the Oedipus cycle of Sophocles, and that whole um, blind, physically blind, but possessed of knowledge beyond uh, what other men's eyes can see is like, that's, that's a running theme in uh, Oedipus, the King and Antigone. And then um, if I remember rightly, uh, Phineas, the prophet who's menaced by harpies in the story of the voyage of the Argo, if I remember rightly, he is blind as well. Um, so, so that, that seems to be, you know, it's a trope. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wish I could remember who I'd heard say it. Um, it's probably John Mark Reynolds. Uh, I can't remember who I heard say it, but uh, it was something to the effect of uh, even if Homer hadn't been blind, it's the, it's the sort of thing that later generations would have invented about him. Right, <laughs> <laughs> but because of that that strong tie, imagine a tie in the culture between between blindness and amazing gifts of mind, whether it be creativity or prophecy. It, it is this is the kind of person that produces this mm-hmm. kind of work, right? Yeah, I, I was really curious about that because I I have heard that again even even in i like you said i think since ancient times the idea that this is kind of a homer cameo like yeah yeah hitchcock trying to catch a bus <laughs> in one of his movies you know yeah um, homer steps in front of the camera and like turns sideways so you see his right. profile <laughs> yeah but or in um the m night Shyamalan. yeah uh which well i get i guess by the time this episode drops uh the listeners will have heard those episodes but that is uh right 
that is a special series that is coming um Woo-hoo. yeah good stuff so um some something though you know the, the hitchcock example is is kind of silly but Demodocus actually has a maybe the Shyamalan example is is better because Demodocus actually does play a role, right? Uh, and he doesn't just appear and it's like oh look a blind poet. Uh, yeah. He 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 plays a crucial role, particularly in book eight, as mm-hmm. he sings a couple of songs that uh, both I think establish kind of recurring themes, mm-hmm. which we might talk about. Yeah. Uh, as well as moving the plot along because like you said, it's Odysseus's responses to these songs that kind of signal changes you know we're, we're going to the next the next event in tonight's program uh yes. you know at the at the prompting of alcanus um so talking about the games um as yes. we've talked about the greeks what can are... we say about sports <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh who is let me where was this one line uh what was it uh, on that cue, the noble prince strode up before Odysseus, front and center, asking, Come, stranger, sir, won't you try your hand at our contest now, if you have skill in any? It's fit and proper for you to know your sports, which is how I feel on social media. <laughs> March it Madness. It's fit and proper super- for you to know your sports. <laughs> right. <laughs> or if I make the mistake of wearing one of my Clemson hats in the Columbia area, that's um, <laughs> setting me up for lots of conversations I, I am unequipped and don't want to have. Um, so the, the Greeks again are just hyper competitive and Odysseus after observing the games, but getting mm-hmm. noticed, just observing is invited to join. Um, how do you think this might, it, it occurred to me that this is, even though there's a little bit of, you know, as, as Nathan put it in the original outline that this kid is kind of a young buck who's, you know, challenging, uh, the old guy. Uh, even though there is that dimension to it, how how might we see this kind of as an example of hospitality as well? The 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 participation in athletics is I mean, we saw it uh, in the Iliad um, with the the funeral games for uh, for Patroclus, um, and for those who keep reading. Uh, in the in the greater Trojan War expanded universe of Virgil, um, there are also uh, athletic competitions in the Aeneid. So the idea that this would be a fitting pastime for uh, aristocrats, nobility, right? Um, this is this would be like. Come, guest. We're going to go out and shoot partridges. <laughs> or like, like you know, it's it, it's it's something kind of kind of like that, mm-hmm. where you know we might look at it and be like, "Hey, everybody's out on the lawn playing touch football. You want to come?" Um, but I think it has a different valence than that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a uh, this is a a noble pursuit, a princely pursuit. Um. But it's also a it's it's also a tension because uh, we know that one of the things that Greeks used athletics for was as a proxy for war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, which is why so many of the events in the Olympics are things like spear throwing and right. <laughs> sprinting and eighty pounds of armor. <laughs> you know, wrestling and boxing and. Um, you know, all of those. How do I demonstrate that I'm strong enough to kill you? If that was what was at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so the uh the the pro it, it, it's a way to have an aristia with a low body count yeah yeah <laughs> that's a good point so that's not something that we've seen of odysseus up to this point there's been no uh no real demonstration of heroic prowess he's mostly just been washing up on beaches and stuff um even and crying and crying there's yeah. there's been some crying um he hasn't come off well and if you if you were sort of rolling into you know the terminator 2 of the franchise <laughs> and you're waiting for odysseus to conduct some kind of ninja night raid or something on, on that order um you're gonna be sorely disappointed and you're like what has he lost his edge <laughs> you know what has happened to our hero and now he has a chance to kind of demonstrate no he's still got it um yeah it's been you know it's been 20 years since anyone's seen him but he's still uh he's still got it he can still take on guys half his age foreshadowing <laughs> right yeah that's a that's a really good point because this is coming i guess it's really about a third of the way into yes. the story uh, right at a third, um, eight out of 24, right? Um, but uh, I did not make that connection. Yeah, here he is competing again in bloodless competition with mm -hmm. people much younger than him. Uh, but the, uh, again, to go back to the hospitality thing, uh, he has been hosted properly and he is being a proper guest. Um, so you get friendly competition, uh, you know, e even with the kind of, swagger of the young guy who asks mm -hmm. him to join um he is still properly being asked to join uh there's there's a dimension to this too you know i'm glad you mentioned the funeral games in the iliad uh but athletic competition also has a element of the sacred to it um yeah so i don't think they're offering any sacrifices here but you know you think of that what's that famous line from chariots of fire right you know god made me fast and when i i run i feel his pleasure so even if yeah. it is not and if, if you know even if it is not an official religious ritualistic trial by athletics that's got to that's got to be in the air anyway because you know like i said the greeks are very very hyper competitive and and they even compete as an act of worship so that's that's going to be something they carry with them into any competition i think yeah um and i i think that's uh how to how to put this exactly something that i noticed on this read through is the mm -hmm. way the athletic competition and the following activities right th th this whole process through book eight takes odysseus from being a pure outsider to being something of an insider they're, like they are gradually getting to know him more and more uh, until at the beginning of book nine he even reveals his name which we'll talk about but uh you know the responsiveness of the host to his guests needs and especially his emotional needs um what i noticed particularly with the games is that it starts with odysseus sitting out but he is asked yeah. to join in like, you know, let's not leave our guest out, which I, I know I was told as a kid, right. Mm -hmm. um, don't leave the guest out, invite him in. He shows us up. So not only are we being hospitable to him, but we're impressed. Right. Right. Uh, and then it moves from there through the bath to more songs with more people in attendance, which mm -hmm. 
you know, so, something about it. And again, Alcanus's attentions, I'm trying to find exactly the right way to formulate this. He notices that Odysseus is in emotional distress. Yeah. And he gives him the society necessary for him to begin working through that. Does that yeah. make some kind of sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, you know, because we still need to talk about the uh, talk about the tears, but mm-hmm. the the athletic competition ends with Odysseus kind of losing, I either losing his cool, or winning the encounter, winning the encounter. Um, you know, challenging them all. Uh, the heart of the long suffering hero laughed so glad to find a ready friend in the crowd, which is Athena. <laughs> and then, and then he just smack talks all of them. Right. And uh, hey, roundabout line two sixty six, something like that. As soon as he stops, they all stood quiet and hushed, and only An- Alson has found a way to answer. Stranger, nothing you say among us seems ungracious. You simply want to display the gifts you're born with. Stung that a youngster marched up to you in the games, mocking, ridiculing your prowess as no one would who had a sense of fit and proper speech. And you could tell that you could you can almost see him just kind of giving that young guy, uh, was it Laodamus, kind of just <laughs> giving him an eye. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, this is what you brought upon us. Um <laughs> <laughs> giving stop. giving him stop giving embarrassing him some, me <laughs> giving him that side eye like nobody intended to offend you did they <laughs> um but uh, yeah because, i mean certainly alchemist did not yeah yeah so he he's he's just really really diplomatic he's like we're all friends here just all friends <laughs> uh, 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 no squabbling about who killed who <laughs> um it's it's very very much that that kind of situation because um we've already gotten to see with the suitors in earlier books the way headstrong youth can get carried beyond uh carried beyond the the limits of propriety by competitiveness and yeah and here you have you know a a potential I don't know. Eurymachus is one of the suitors, right? Their their names mm-hmm. all kind of blend together after a while. Uh, or Antinous. Here you have a potential one of the suitors reined in before mm-hmm. things become improper yeah. by a present, you know, male authority figure, which which mm-hmm. is conspicuously lacking in Ithaca. That's that's a really good tie ahead as well. Yeah. So he's having to. The king is having to mind not only the psychological well-being of his guest, but also also the egos of his nobility who he has to keep living with after this guy leaves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think I've mentioned this before, or maybe I will in a future episode, but I mean, the, the attention that Homer gives to this kind of, you know, dance of courtesy mm-hmm. is really, really finely drawn and you can see that it particularly in in admirable characters like alchemist yeah well we should get we should we should get going because we haven't even got to the cyclops right like, I'm, well, I'm just really <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well i think we're i think we're about at about a halfway mark here yeah, okay this is, this is a this is a good halfway mark uh so, do we want to so say why does odysseus cry what makes him cry 
That is a great question. Why does he cry? Because I don't think he cries he, the same is, reason twice. I think uh, we, we wanted to talk at least a little bit about some of the Demodocus's songs. Right. Um, one of the songs is about Ares and Aphrodite. Yes. Partic- and so that is a song about... Everyone laughs about that. Yes. That is a song about a god whose wife is cheating on him. Yes. And he figures it out mm-hmm. and lays a trap for the cheaters. Uh-huh. And then becomes, nevertheless, becomes an object of fun to everyone else. Yes. Um, and there is an anxiety throughout the first half, at least, of the poem, right, about Odysseus coming home. Because mm-hmm. uh, he is not getting text updates from anybody in Ithaca. <laughs> he, has, <laughs> he has no idea what situation might pertain there when he gets back. Yes. Um, and Penelope and, you know, is not checking into Facebook as safe and still single. <laughs> marked safe from suitors um <laughs> but yeah the uh so i mean he has no idea what is awaiting him because he has <laughs> he has been in quarantine for several years uh on on this island and uh i i think his response to the aries and aphrodite story which again alchemist picks up on is uh specifically seeing himself the great you know the man of many ways seeing himself as Hephaestus, you know, crippled and ridiculed and cuckolded, uh, who, you know, but also again, establishing that, uh, you know, speaking of foreshadowing, uh, a man who has been betrayed, laying a trap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, this is a potential preview of one of the possibilities that awaits him if he gets back to Ithaca. Yep. Um, I don't know why. Why else might he cry? I, I use the word "if" there deliberately. Well, I mean, he's not home yet. Mm-hmm. Well, the very first one that makes him cry before the sports. So we have the first song, sports, Aphrodite, bath, and then the song about the Trojan horse. The first song that he hears and cries about is uh, around about line 80, 88. Um, the muse inspired the bard the muse inspired the bard so like this is a divine movement that he sing that that he sing this the muse inspired the bard to sing the famous deeds of fighting heroes this fame the song whose fame had reached the skies those days the strife between odysseus and achilles peleus son how once at the gods lavish feast the captains clashed in a savage war of words while Agamemnon, Lord of Armies, rejoiced at heart that Achaia's bravest men were battling so. And that was the song the famous harper sang, but Odysseus, and this is line 100, clutched his cape in both hands, drew it over his head, buried his face, ashamed that his host might see him shedding tears. So whenever the rapt bard would pause in the song, he would lift the cape from his head, wipe off his tears, and pour out an oblation for the gods. And then when the singing would begin, would begin again, he would hide his face and continue to weep. Um, so this time it catches him off guard and his tears are something to hide. Uh, he's trying to not draw attention to himself by concealing his tears. Yeah. Uh, which is something that uh, Telemachus did in book four when Menelaus brings up uh, 
the fact that he feels sad that Odysseus never came home and that draws tears from Telemachus and Telemachus covers his face with his cloak. Yeah. And here we get the way I read this, at least is Odysseus is hearing stories about people he knows are dead now. Yeah. Right. And he was there when Achilles died. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, and I, I know that there are people that have either died or I just have no contact with anymore where when I remember disagreements or yeah. spats, you know, that, that causes grief. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, even, even more so you get this dispute with uh, Odysseus, excuse me, Odysseus and Achilles. Uh, and I, I can't remember at this point of the story, does Odysseus know yet that Agamemnon has been murdered? Uh, he does. We okay. will find out in book 11, which is the, the, the third the third of four books right in which odysseus um tells his story to the phaeacians and yes, so all so right. those are all things that have happened chronologically before he arrived on calypso's island right right um, right so in book 11 uh we will learn that uh he has actually met agamemnon and achilles in the land of the dead and he knows that agamemnon was shamefully murdered by his wife right and he knows and then that achilles okay. is not comforted by his posthumous fame right right yeah so which makes which makes hearing about that doubly poignant i imagine yeah yeah the uh the, the odyssey has this like proto christopher nolan structure <laughs> uh mm. and so i i remember you know the, the story <laughs> The story of the trip to the underworld comes in the middle, and I, I know that that happens chronologically before this, but you got to actively work to remember that sometimes. Yeah. Um, so let me see here. So, yeah, that's the point at which Alcinous um, calls, a, calls a halt to the song because he sees the way that it's affecting Odysseus and says, hey, how about we all go out in the yard and play sports? Um, you, you boys go outside now. <laughs> <laughs> um and with, with with the results that we've seen um they come back in uh or at a later phase in the entertainments at least we have the the aphrodite uh aries hephaestus triangle and that is before odysseus says do you take requests yes um, um but before so what, he takes requests he has a bath right um now <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to dwell on the bath, because I mean, lots of people take baths. It's pretty great, um, you know. Which you know, I get this. You know, you're dirty. You've been out like throwing discuses. You know, you've been eating like roast pork. Like I have. I like. I love barbecue, but man, am <laughs> I in and out of the of the bathroom at a barbecue restaurant because I just you know I just can't abide the mess on my hands. Yes. Anyways, so Odysseus is having a bath, and as he comes out, uh, around about line five, uh, five uh, twelve, he steps from the bath to join the nobles at his wine. He has his clothes on, so that's good. And there stood Nausicaa as he passed. Beside a column that propped the sturdy roof, she paused, endowed by the gods with all her beauty, gazing at Odysseus right before her eyes. 
Wonderstruck, she hailed her guest with a winning flight of words. Farewell, my friend. And when you are at home, home in your own land, remember me at times. Mainly to me, you owe the gift of life. Odysseus rose to the moment deftly, gently. Nausicaa, daughter of, the gener of generous King Alcinous, may Zeus the Thunderer, Hera's husband, grant it so, that I travel home and see the dawn of my return. Even at home, I'll pray to you as a deathless goddess all my days to come. You saved my life, dear girl. And then he goes and sits by the king. Now this, if you remember uh, books six and seven, uh, Nausicaa and her dad have been actively shipping her with Odysseus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there has been open speculation about like, what if he just stays, you know? <laughs> this is a nice and, young man. Yeah, he's, he's a nice young man. He's, he's very, very give credit to the family. <laughs> Beautiful, strong grandchildren. Um, <laughs> um but yeah, so uh, so Nausicaa has very artfully positioned herself. She just is kind of randomly standing in this room where nothing's happening, just kind of leaning against a column or something like, oh, oh, hey, I was just sort of here <laughs> admiring the, oh, hey, oh, hey, funny to see, funny to see you here. You, you can almost hear her mom in attendance scurrying away. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like this is, this is interesting. And then he, he hustles back in commandeers the situation talks for four books about how dangerous it is to try to keep him on an island <laughs> and then they send him home <laughs> that's great so yeah when i when uh when lecturing on this to my students i'm like you know nausicaa isn't circe and she isn't calypso but Odysseus, I think Odysseus is kind of is is kind of scared of Nausicaa. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, gotta extricate myself. Yeah, That's, yeah, that is a really good point. Um, yeah, and it is a credit to Nausicaa and Alcanus that they let him go. Yes. Um, I mean, they you know as, as comically as maybe they're learning the lesson or something, it is nevertheless to take it back to hospitality. Yeah. It is also bad hospitality to insist that your guests stay. Yeah, um, Calypso. I'm, I'm having all kinds of deja vu today. I'm sure I've said this in another episode, but we've, yeah. we've all been in those get-togethers where you can't get away. Oh. Right? And uh, now, now imagine one where you've been on the road for 20 years and you're at a get-together. And not only can you not leave, but they're trying to get you to marry the daughter. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's very Hotel California. Yeah, yeah. Except you've got Athena on your side trying to prompt them to let you go. Yes. So speaking of going, is there anything else we want to say before we start talking about Polyphemus? Yeah. So the reason why Odysseus gets the floor uh, is that uh, we said that he, you know, he's now asking Demodocus, do you take requests? You know, he sends him a gift um, and requests specifically requests the song sing of the wooden horse epius built with athena's help the cunning trap that good odysseus brought one day to the heights of troy so sing the song of the trojan horse which 
which he begins to do. Demodocus begins to sing it. And then we have um, around about line 586, something like that. That was the song the famous harper sang, but great Odysseus melted into tears, running down from his eyes to wet his cheeks as a woman weeps, her arms flung round her darling husband, a man who fell in battle fighting for town and townsmen. And it keeps going, right? It's a really long epic simile. But it's all describing the way that Odysseus is crying, publicly crying, visibly crying, not concealing it in any way. All right. The last time, I think the tears were a surprise, and that was honesty. This time, he's requested the song and is now sitting over the side, like crying anime tears, right? <laughs> just like just like waterfalls sprouting from his eyes. <laughs> And Allison is just like, okay, time out. <laughs> My dude, are you okay? <laughs> and Clear, clearly grief has overpowered his heart. Yes. Can you can you tell us your story? <laughs> <laughs> why are you crying about Odysseus? Uh, you know, why do you grieve so sorely when you hear about the fate of the Argives, the fall of Troy, line, you know, 647, 48? You know, like did one of your kinsmen die at Troy or something? And then book nine, beginning of book nine, Odysseus <gasps> wipes the tears <laughs> off his face, you know, and talks for four books. Yeah. It's a great setup. <laughs> oh, yeah. Odysseus, the man of twist and turns, the man who is never at a loss. Yeah. Yeah. So Polyphemus. Yes. So uh, book nine to transition to that here with about <laughs> about 20 minutes to go. So uh, in you know book nine, uh, Fagel's uh, titles this in the one-eyed giant's cave. So um, mm -hmm. just th this is one of the most famous incidents in the Odyssey. Um, right. Everybody knows the Cyclops. It's <laughs> uh, let me go ahead and again drop my now by now standard reference to O Brother Harthel. Um, yes. you know, that's, uh, which also includes a dialogue in the very first scene, right. About, uh, the second sight that blind people have. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, one of the most famous incidents from the Odyssey, which if you get any, I know, I know every children's version of the Odyssey I've ever seen makes sure to include, uh, Polyphemus. Mm -hmm. There's, there's very good reasons for that. Right. Um, yeah. Can you, uh, so I guess briefly, David, if you could briefly recap what happens, because most of this book is taken up by this incident. Right. Uh, and why does it particularly get so much attention? It's, uh, it, it's, it's the longest early episode in his story. Uh, it's, it's exciting. It's gory. It's tense. It's got cannibalism, entrapment, giants, monster fighting, eye poking. Um, it's got it all, right? It is awesome. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that the way it it, it turns out this way because of uh, how the previous adventure turned out. Um, the the stop before this is the land of the Lotus Eaters uh, and in which Odysseus sends a couple of his crew to scout out the land, 
but they get trapped by the you know the weird you know the weird hippie commune that is the lotus eaters <laughs> you know they're all high as kites and never going home um odysseus has to go and drag them back to the boat uh but that seems to be the reason why the next place that they show up uh it is odysseus himself who sets out to explore um, because last time he he you know last time he delegated <laughs> <laughs> and uh it, it turned out you know that they, they they nearly averted disaster so this time he takes it upon himself um it's kind of funny because when we get in uh, when when they get into book 10 uh when they arrive on Circe's island they're actually casting lots about who go, who goes on shore <laughs> <laughs> so you can kind of see over the course of this of this long account that every time they land on an island it's like you know that <laughs> very very clear the, you know what's the once bitten twice shy yeah um, yeah. yeah there's the there's something Icelandic. like that uh, the Icelandic proverb, the burnt child fears the fire. Yes. You know, you know, it gets to the point where they're, you know, drawn straws to see who goes on shore. <laughs> <laughs> and, to you know, at least in this incident with the Cyclops, mm -hmm. as later incidents make very clear, Odysseus cr Odysseus's crew really looks like the kind where Odysseus, you know, would have to say, if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, he would have been, come on, you knuckleheads, you know. <laughs> he is the Mo of these Stooges. <laughs> yes. So uh, the the introduction to the island or to, to the Cyclops is, interestingly enough, it's not to the Cyclops himself, uh, even in terms of uh, what he looks like. I mean, pre I guess presumably, you know, people knew what a Cyclops was like. It's like built you know, their name means, you know, round eye, all right, um, and cy uh, cyclops, uh, cyclops, cyc cyclopes, 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 I think, anyway, yeah. uh, feature in other myths, so maybe physical description wasn't even necessary, but when we're introduced to them, he uh, says that uh, they've reached the land of the high and mighty cyclops, line 120, lawless brutes who so trust the everlasting lasting gods that they never plant with their hands or plow the soil um the earth seems to teem with all they need wheat and barley and vines so they have no agriculture they just eat whatever grows they have no meeting place for counsel no laws up in the mountain peaks they live in caves each a law to himself ruling his wives and children no care for the world and then uh he looking at this island um it looks great but they haven't done anything to develop the harbor um you know the the, the it, it's it would be wonderful land for for settlement for agriculture but they don't do any of that because they're completely uncivilized mm. they don't they don't have laws they don't have agriculture they don't have uh living together in community they don't have any of the things that you know for homer and his audience are the marks of a civilization right and no cities you know, you know cannibal one-eyed giants that's like something you find out later the really important thing they don't have laws or agriculture yeah <laughs> no meeting place no agro yeah so uh i i think 
I, I think one of the reasons why this is getting emphasized so much um, is it's going to get made use of later. And it's, I, I, I think it's part of the way that he's relating to his audience. He's just sort of letting them know these are savages. They are uncivilized. They are yeah. lacking in all of the, um, the, the cultural technologies and forms that we associate with um, a, a society. Right. And this would not be a phenomenon unfamiliar to Homer's audience. I mean, there would have been people living around the Greeks who lived more or less like this. What what he seems to be describing is says, you know, is I, I mentally picture individual cyclopes living in the wilderness, but he says that each is a law to himself, ruling his wives and children. So this is more like a clan-based society. Yeah. You know, think think of the most remote stretch of like Afghanistan or something, you know, up in the Hindu Kush is what mm-hmm. You know, now now people that with giants and you've got something approaching the society so-called of the Cyclopes. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. They're incredible. Yeah, they're incredibly, incredibly isolated. Yeah. Um, and so and still living as hunter gatherers to, to your point about the agriculture. Mm-hmm. Which so they again, do have uh, Polyphemus does raise goats. Yes. Yeah. Because, you know, that's where he gets cheese. Right, they're herders. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so this is. I, I feel like this is some some ancient Greek social commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we get to later writers like Herodotus, um, where we actually get a Greek writer intentionally writing about non-Greek cultures and their practices, um, we 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 definitely get some sense of what what Greeks find um, interesting, fascinating or repelling in cult in in other cultures that are that are that don't do things the way they do them um this i see is almost kind of a preview of that Um, that's a really good point i think it's fascinating that whenever you see humans in homeric epic their cultures are exactly the same Hmm. human cultures are are more or less identical they worship the same gods. They have to have the same norms and practices. They eat the same kinds of food. They practice hospitality in the same ways. Um, in order to meet someone who does culture differently, you have to meet monsters. That's really interesting. Yeah. And isn't it, uh, isn't it Aristotle later who says that anybody living in isolation is either a god or a monster? I'm, yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but that's, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and humans are political animals. Um, right. We, you know, we are innately social and we, and living in the polis is our, ought to be our natural state. Right. And that's what, uh, it, it has been forever since I've read Herodotus, but an impression that I remember gathering is that what impresses Herodotus about Barbaroi, right, about non-Greek peoples is uh development i mean he is he is blown away by the egyptians and spends forever talking about the egyptians Mm -hmm. uh because they you know their their culture clearly predates even that of the greeks who are who are superior let us not Mm -hmm. forget that but you know uh the 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 egyptians are onto something and they can be respected for that Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to what homer is describing here as again what is essentially a clan-based hunter-gatherer or herding culture um that has no no, again, not even the 
I guess this is a good point to, to, to bring up a question that I have, because this is something that's popped up in other episodes. What I was about to say was that the, the Cyclopes do not appear to have any kind of, uh, because they are kind of asocial or antisocial, they don't have the norms that you described that all humans yeah. seem to share. What, what is that? How are we to perceive Odysseus's setting up shop in Polyphemus's cave then? Because I've, I've seen this read a couple of different ways. Uh, the uncharitable way is that Odysseus is a hypocrite who is, <laughs> who is barging into Polyphemus's cave the same way that the suitors have barged into his house mm -hmm. uh, and that he is demanding and that he has no right to be there. And so Polyphemus is kind of justified in biting a few guys heads off um another another version of that though is that odysseus is presuming that the cyclopes will honor the same kinds of burdens of hospitality and claims of mm -hmm. hospitality that are clearly afforded to guests in other parts of the poem right I mean, even, right, even right before i think it's uh right before telemachus heads home he's like on mm -hmm. the beach about to get on a ship and a guy comes up and is like Hey, I need a ride. I'm in exile. I murdered somebody. Can you give me a lift? Maybe host me for a while, which absolutely seems presumptuous to us, but apparently is a standard part of Greek hospitality. So which one of those is Odysseus, especially considering that? I mean, my own inclination is to read it as Odysseus claiming hospitality from Polyphemus. But of course, Polyphemus does not operate that way. Uh, right. Odysseus has made a mistake by presuming that whoever, because I guess I guess they don't actually know it's a cyclops at first, right? It's just a really yeah. big guy who lives in a cave. So he's assuming that he'll be shown the same kinds of hospitality he could claim elsewhere and eventually will, mm -hmm. and that other characters do, but mm -hmm. that uh, it blows up in his face. I don't know which uh, which of those two interpretations do you think is more apt? Is this Odysseus as hypocrite? or Odysseus as a mistaken guest or somewhere right. in between. Well, he comes prepared to give a guest gift. There's yeah. this, this wine that he had previously gotten and it gives backstory on the wine. He brings it with him when mm -hmm. the sighting of so of smoke indicates that there's a settlement. Yeah. Right. So he's, he's come prepared for an exchange of goods, an exchange of gifts. Um, he also announces himself once Polyphemus arrives. Once um, Polyphemus arrives. Um, but they, they, sh they show up at Polyphemus's dwelling while the Cyclops is gone. Uh, they come inside and find, for, for all of his savagery, he actually has this really well-organized home space with the young of his flock sorted by age and maturity. So I'm, you know, not a shepherd, nor the son of a shepherd, um, <laughs> but I presume that there's some kind of difference of care. Um, it, it, but it describes him sorting, um, sorting the young that are in their pins, you know, based on I think like like where they are in the stages of weaning, or maybe it's something like that. But also, there's all of these cheeses out, kind of drying or curing. I'm not really sure how cheese works either. <laughs> um, so they come in and they see the scale of this cheese 
And I guess the scale of the sheep, too, because like at the end of the adventure, they're going to get out of the cave by hanging on the bottoms of sheep. Right. Like, like, are these like llamas? <laughs> like bison sized sheep. Yeah. I mean, this is not like little Batman, like, like, you know, Mary had a little, you know, no, like Odysseus can hide underneath it. Um, this is a shaggy Highland cow. <laughs> um, and the other thing is the Cyclops milks them. So they can't be like conventional sized sheep, you know, right. you've got a, you've got a giant that can, you know, eat two guys like, you know, lickety split. I mean, he's huge. Like, how's he like, he, he must have like these giant, you know, <laughs> you know, giant stumps of like fingers, like pool noodles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, how does he, how's he milking a sheep? Anyway, whatever. So there's a problem of scale. They show up in this cave and they see huge cheese, huge sheep, big everything. Uh, it's it's like the classic Jack climbs the beanstalk and everything goes right. up in scale. Yeah, yeah. Um, and their first instinct is, yeah, we're taking all the cheese, <laughs> and we're gonna take all these young, all the young offspring, all the young livestock, and we're getting out of here. And Odysseus is like, no, guys, no, I want to see if you if you'll do the gift exchange thing, right? So they stay and eat all his cheese. right so while they're waiting they're eating all of his cheese <laughs> right <laughs> he comes back he sorts his flock they're hiding in the shadows because as soon as walk in, he walks in they're like holy crap it's a monster um like you didn't pick up on the, the scale like yeah <laughs> you know you're rolling these cheeses across the floor like wagon wheels um but so I, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of the. They start off abusing hospitality, mm -hmm. like they just kind of roll up, make themselves at home, and eat all this stuff. And uh, yeah, Odysseus gives a formal greeting. He explains who he is. Notice when Odysseus answers the challenge of Polyphemus, strangers, what are you? Are you pirates or raiders? Uh, his response is, we're men from Achaea bound from Troy. Um, we're glad to say we're men of Atreides Agamemnon, whose fame is the proudest thing on earth these days. So great a city he sacked, such multitudes he's killed. We're at your knees in hopes of a welcome, even a guest gift. The sort that hosts give strangers, that's the custom. Like he's like laying on like yeah. real thick, like hospitality. <laughs> um rescue uh, respect the gods my friend we're suppliants at your mercy zeus of strangers guards all guests and suppliants strangers are sacred zeus will a friend will avenge their rights so laying it on super thick but note that the first thing that he says is we are achaeans who were returning from our famous victory at Troy. We are the men of Atreides Agamemnon, who you might have heard of. He's the most right. powerful and rich regional king <laughs> with the largest army. Um, did I mention that we are first victorious conquerors who have a friend with even more troops? Like, <laughs> and also Zeus. Yeah. Like, 
I feel threat in Odysseus's tone of voice hmm. um, that he feels threatened. And so right. he is on, and so he is uh, at the same time kind of projecting strength. He's trying and, to, trying to look tougher than maybe he feels at the moment. Cause it right before the passage you read, it says the hearts inside us shook terrified by his rumbling voice and monstrous. <laughs> hey, we're tough guys. And we have really tough friends and also God. <laughs> and a girlfriend in canada <laughs> who's who's totally hot but you guys are never going to meet her yeah i don't yeah that's that's it's interesting i wonder this this would reward yet another rereading but i know we're, we're past the hour mark now so i know we need to be be bringing this in for a landing um i need to poke this thing in the eye and escape so <laughs> well so one thing I, to consider is that as he's telling the story, he's telling it to the Phaeacians. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Right. His right. Voice. And he's just had Nausicaa loitering out in the hall, you know, trying to sort of catch him and pass some time, get some private conversation. Right. And now he's like, we're threatening dudes. <laughs> um, I'm a threatening dude. I can come up with cunning plans and guests are sacred. So yeah yeah hmm. that is that is another layer to this i hadn't really considered once once you're in the adventures it is hard to remind your excuse me to remind yourself of uh the context in which odysseus is telling the story because he tells it so well um how much of this do you think to to you know not to beat on that original question too much later we get, we get examples of odysseus not being able to control his men and them getting him in trouble. Could this be an example of that? Um, the only reason why they've stuck around is he wanted to stay. Okay. All right. Um, and maybe Polyphemus would have treated them a little better if they hadn't eaten all of his cheese. Yeah. But they're, they're still banking on him just being like a really big, person who will who will respect hospitality Interesting. right um so I, I i feel like in 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 some ways this is a this is a strategic miscalculation on odysseus's part yeah for sure um he is typically able to in contest of strength face it with either strength or guile and overcome um and in cases of diplomacy to use sweet words, flattery, or even lies in order to get out of it. He trusts his ability to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to face any obstacle. Uh, but when he, when you roll up in Polyphemus's cave, he's far stronger and he can't be sweet talked. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, I, I read this as an Odysseus miscalculation. Yeah, you know, he I, thought he could handle the situation, but he can't. Yeah, it keeps turning sideways on him. That's yeah, that's probably the best way to to look at this because there's there is the weirdness with hospitality where he's mm -hmm. trying to be hospitable and not doing a great job, but he so so he he will have to fall back on those other skill sets that he has, but those don't work either. I I, I like mm -hmm. that. I, I think that makes a lot of sense of this. So let's 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 wrap this up really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. A whole bunch of Odysseus's men get eated. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
because Polyphemus, uh, as a monster, right, a giant, can move this enormous boulder to the mouth of his cave to keep himself safe, right. which is probably another sign of his savagery, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because he's having to shut himself in at night in a way that uh, hints again that he's alone. Uh, Odysseus's house has guards at the doors, right? Um, so even, you know, even though this is a world where you can fortify yourself in a house, it is still a social world. Uh, mm-hmm. Polyphemus doesn't even have that, so he's just got to kind of box himself in, like, yeah, um, like an I am legend or something, right? Because all the other, <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like the implication is that all the other cyclopes are a threat. Yeah, you know? and they they absolutely don't have pity on him, you know, at the end. Because uh, long story short, um, again, trying to trying to restrain Mad Max here. without trashy vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, long story short, uh, Odysseus very famously is able to orchestrate an escape, uh, even though mm-hmm. Polyphemus keeps leaving him and his men locked in the cave. The yep. stone is too big for them to move it. Mm-hmm. Odysseus uh, finds a pole, uh, mm-hmm. sharpens, and then hardens the point in the fire mm-hmm. uh, that Polyphemus keeps burning. And uh, I don't know about you, David, but camping as a kid, this was something that we boys did all the time, was sharpen a stick, harden it in the fire, right? And you can That's cool. You can make really nasty kind of improvised stick weapons with it my, my cousin used them to, to gig frogs for for supper back in your um, Lord of the flies days <laughs> well i was out talking to the pig head but that's what, that's what my cousin <laughs> did. so uh th- this is uh again um the the details of the violence in homer's stories are very realistic and, and even, oh yeah you know what he's describing is just a scaled up version of something that could absolutely actually be done. Mm-hmm. So they wait for Polyphemus to come home. He snacks on a few more guys and sleeps. Uh, they, they drug him and get him drunk. Right. Yeah. 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 That and, wine uh, comes into play now. Yes. And um, uh, not the only example we will see of people using drugs to, uh, <laughs> to their advantage. <laughs> I mean, Hel- Helen even puts something in Menelaus and Telemachus's drink early. Yeah. Yeah. So, happy uh, juice. Yeah, and and remember the Greek word pharmakon is, you know, somebody who mixes drugs, but it is also a poisoner. Mm-hmm. It is also a witch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we get uh, again Odysseus as many ways he uses. You know, him and his men all Iwo Jima style sort of hoist up this pole and drive it into Polyphemus's eyeball, which is really. Uh, <laughs> vividly and disgustingly described which blinds polyphemus and then they are able to make their escape by uh hanging on to the undersides of some of those sheep which he can now no longer see but pets as they leave the uh, cave for the day and um uh you know it Odysseus, would style i love that yeah <laughs> that's what i'm mentally picturing is all of them you know hoisting right. this pole up and driving it down so odysseus is able to you know beat it to the strand uh get on the ship and escape and polyphemus blind and enraged knowing that they've escaped uh kind of ends calling down a curse from his mm-hmm. father who turns out to be poseidon Oops. on uh odysseus uh and also gets kind of laughed at by his neighbors because odysseus the only name odysseus has given him is nobody mm-hmm. so you get this you get this what i think of is when i was a kid on oregon trail i would name the people in my wagon train like somebody and nobody <laughs> So, you know, somebody has, somebody has dysentery. Nobody got lost. Um, <laughs> Yay. Yeah. So uh, nobody uh, died. Yeah. So when, when uh, all of uh, Polyphemus's again, savage Cyclops neighbors 
hear him hollering and throwing boulders into the ocean after a ship that he can't see. And they ask him what's wrong. He says, you know, nobody blinded me. Nobody stole from me. And they're like, okay, well, what's the problem then? <laughs> Which is uh, funny. And yet also, again, a very, very grim joke. Yeah. Uh, so you understand 100% where Polyphemus is coming from when he calls down this curse. And it's that curse that is going to set up basically everything else that goes wrong for Odysseus over the next several books, ending up with him. The first time we see him in this poem, crying on the beach. Yeah. Uh, so uh, is there uh, is there anything else we should say about this incident before we wrap up? It is probably the not just the best known, but but the most complex instance of Odysseus's cunning mm -hmm. in problem solving, because this is a really multi-layered problem. Uh, yep. He's got there's uh, there's. They, they are uh, secluded, uh, they are uh, confined. So there's confinement. They can't get out. Uh, there's a timer, which is that every night the Cyclops eats more. Yeah. Right. So there's so so they don't have all the time in the world. They can't get out. They have very limited resources. They've got to MacGyver this. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he's got, and 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 all of those problems are working together. He can't just kill the Cyclops, because then they're just going to starve to death in his cave, unable to move the boulder. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So how can he? Uh, how can he disable but not kill the Cyclops? How can he get out of the cave? And how can he avoid the Cyclops calling for backup? Right. Right. So, so I mean, thinking thinking about it tactically, this is this is just this is peak Odysseus. Yeah. As as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I would be, you know, if I was the dungeon master in this session of the Odyssey, <laughs> I would be so proud of the player who is Odysseus. Like, yeah, because this is <laughs> this encounter well, was way beyond the the challenge rating of the players. It was just just amazing. Yeah. Well, to, to bring it full circle, um, you know, you talked about how uh, you talked earlier about how this you know book eight kind of gave us. The first real glimpse of Odysseus as Odysseus, because so far what we have seen is not that impressive. He's you know lost for the first several books, and when we finally meet him, he's weeping and, and mostly kind of helped along by a variety of female figures like Athena as a goddess and then Nausicaa, who's a, a teenage girl. Um, now we're actually seeing him in action and in a severely trying – like that. I really like the way you laid out the uh, the kind of – die hard on steroids scenario that he's in in Polyphemus's mm. cave and I think narratively something that it does well too is it also shows that Odysseus is vulnerable uh, so that it is not a foregone conclusion that he will be able to get out of the scenario with the suitors at the end of the uh, yeah. poem so expertly done by Homer um, who only grows in my estimation the older I get and the more I read him um, dear Amen. listener uh, keep listening next week we will resume this story with uh, you'll have different hosts um, uh, I think it's uh, Victoria and Jay and uh, maybe Christina Bieber Lake on that episode which should be a good discussion um, please tune in next time you'll hear it uh, pick up with book 10 
of the Odyssey. We'll find out what happens to Odysseus after Poseidon has had his attention drawn to what happened to his son, Polyphemus. Oops. It ain't going to be good. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. The Christ, uh, excuse me, the core curriculum podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, please tune in. Uh, check check out the website uh, ChristianHumanist.org to see what other shows are on offer. Because I subscribe to almost all of them personally, I think, uh, and everything is really good. Uh, so if you like what you're hearing, keep listening and check out the other shows. Uh, have a good one and tune in next time. <laughs>